Hey, what's up, listeners? Um, so, a week ago, I got on a plane to Geneva for the uh, Human Rights Council. And um, while on a plane, uh, we got word that there was a delay for an hour or so. So we had to sit in the airplane, on a tarmac actually, um, just watching paint dry. So I don't know what happened, but suddenly my mind went into reflection mode. I started thinking about like 18 years, 17 or 18 years of being involved in the international indigenous advocacy work at the UN, um, particularly on the rights of indigenous peoples. And some, some deep thoughts, some, some truths and hardships and aha, aha moments started to surface. Um, so I decided to record that and I also decided to share it with you. This is the Goma Luku Podcast. So my play was delayed for a, an hour or so and I'm in the airplane right now and while the flight was delayed I was thinking a little bit back and forth um, yeah not over it yeah just thinking and can realize that I've spent a lot of time the past two years trying to figure out why things happen the way they do and I still have no idea, but I do know that I, if you told me when I was 14 that a couple months later I would start on a lifelong journey, I would have definitely called you crazy. So fast forward, fast forward to now, I'm, I'm in an airplane again, and I think I'm clocking in my 17th year of experience in the Indian rights advocacy. Um, and as I think of it, I think I'll try to reflect a little bit and document my thoughts and set myself up for the next at least 17 years. Um, so there it goes. Um, well, here's my pitfall, actually. Um, my insecurities tell me that I should make a perfect start. Um, even though common sense tells me that the, the perfect start is, a, is to start, right? So, I think I have to let that false narrative go and just have to start sharing and I just God I'm trying to figure out where to start alright here's one that popped into my head um, I think I'll start with while I was in the negotiations for the local communities and these people's platform uh, on traditional knowledge in May last year so that would be 2018 and I had the opportunity to sit down with representatives of governments of Pacific nations um, and they were monitoring, monitoring the negotiations 
as well as how I performed as a representative of its of these peoples in the negotiations. Come to think of it, it was it was quite flattering. As first of all, because it's it was a role that was pretty much bestowed upon me, and I definitely feel that there were at least a dozen of indigenous relatives relations in the room that could have taken on the role as well and could have done it easily. So these Pacific nations were monitoring the negotiations because of a distinct but related process that was ongoing in New York which was which also was focusing on one of the most important problems in these peoples are facing um, respect for our rights and traditional knowledge genetic resources, uh, livelihoods, uh, the planet, and more. Um, So yeah, so that was pretty flattering. So they brought me up to speed, and I teamed up with the International Indian Treaty Council, the missions of Fiji, Nauru, Micronesia to the UN in New York um, to bring light to the issues under the new BBNJ Treaty or what well, we call it the BBNJ Treaty but it's actually a treaty to protect the biodiversity of the high seas and that's because and I think this is a very significant process uh, because oceans has been on my mind for more than 10 years um, but particularly the previous two years it has been constantly on my radar because of two reasons. Um, first, but not coincidentally, the, the negotiations on the traditional knowledge platform under the UNCCC. As I sometimes say in dreams, how amazing it would be if we would have a similar initiative regarding oceans. And I think the second one, because of the focus of many indigenous and non-indigenous peoples on forests to fight climate change and protect biodiversity. So the focus is on forests, but like the oceans are equally important as well, at least in my point of view. And this brings also a little bit about my mindset. Um, as it is always, my mindset is always to try and maintain that wide-angle lens. Um, because when you focus on what's happening on your left side, you tend to neglect what's happening on your right side. Um, that's why I always get anxious when we tend to zoom in too much on one particular topic. Especially just where the strength of these people's is the holistic view. Uh, being aware that everything is related and dependent of each other. So, for example, forests, deserts, ice, and oceans, they're all equally important. So in this, I don't know what it is actually, what I'm, what I should call this, a love story maybe? Um, yeah, let's, let's go with love story for now. 
So in this love story, I'll try to explain my thoughts on the role of these peoples and major international decisions and what crown rules and mentality I deploy in indigenous rights advocacy and negotiations. Um, all in all, I think this is a very super, very, very super important conversation that indigenous people should have on how you can navigate these and other types and sorts of decision-making processes run by negotiators and geopolitical interests and yeah, and affecting these peoples. Um, oh man, I have to definitely have to try to prevent this from becoming a brain dump and keep my thoughts organized. Um, because I think what I'm trying to say is that there's, I believe there's something in the air. Um, discussions on traditional knowledge have been there for a while, particularly under the CPD and WIPO, but the past years, the dialogues on how to operationalize and use this knowledge are increasing on an international level. And I, I'm saying, I say dialogues because I don't want to call it recognition, because if you go deep into the dialogues, you see that we're still far, very far from recognition, let alone respect. And that's just based on the meetings that I've been a part of. Now, these views I had of the dialogues discouraged me from participating in the past, but I think after the process of what I like to call self-awareness and self-mastery and I'm still in that process by the way um, I'm the one that loves to dive in first into these dialogues so it's crazy because even if the odds are against us um, I like the challenge and a while ago I discovered a word that I think best describes the style I developed and comes closest to my character Antiambulo is the word, and I still don't know how to pronounce it correctly. It's A-N-T-E-A-M-B-U-L-O. Yeah. Um, what it basically is, it is someone that goes in first like an usher. And that's, that's a little bit how I feel. I like to set the environment for others so that those that come in next can feel safe and empowered and it's not just some jibber jabber for me it I had the same state of mind at the negotiations table for the local communities in these people's platform because uh, when it comes to funding for the rest survival of these peoples and against global threats like climate change and loss of biodiversity um, this is the best way I know how to fight these fights. Um, of course, there's a, a whole host of ways to fight for our survival and against, the global, against these global threats. And to me, they're all equally important. Um, again, deploying that holistic view so you can either go to local and 
create change on the grassroots level or push the gatekeepers at the UN to act. And there's so many ways possible in between. Uh, so for now, and to me, um, self-awareness teaches self-awareness teaches me that I can best complement the other efforts to do by doing, yeah, by doing what I love to do the best way I can. So in this case, it's to push the gatekeepers at the UN. So what needs to happen, right? What needs to happen? I think we need to change the, the status quo globally. Um, from an indigenous point of view, it's indigenizing the world. Um, and by indigenizing, I mean indigenous peoples claiming the right to self-determination. Um, and create all these indigenous initiatives around the world that are changing the norm. And and I've seen those initiatives, I've seen those changes. And all these changes are inspiring more conversation conversations about this. They're inspiring conversations around what I think what my late mom encapsulates as the Adat revolution and I think that's what I sense all the conversations and meetings I've had throughout the years and my, my contribution to this is to influence the decision making processes at the top setting the environment so these people themselves are around the world all around the world can bring the world to that reality I think that's my why. Why I keep doing what I do. So it's always trying to inspire, inspire and empower these peoples, so they can do what inspires them. Um, had some time while the flight was delayed on a tarmac, and what I usually do when I get on a plane, I articulate my why before I step into a process. And others might call it a vision, um, but I call it a why, as it's, um, it's, it's short and sweet, and that can contribute to a vision. Um, it takes some time through asking yourself serious questions um, towards uh, a sentence. Usually it's a, like a yeah, a sentence, one or two, that provides a juice that will keep you going, um, at least for me. Of course, you know, like, it, it's very important to have a why because it's the juice that keeps you going. It is, even though the final product will be satisfying, but I've seen, for example, in the platform negotiations, that it's my why they kept me going. Um, all right, let, let, let's, let's try to give some examples here um, of empowerment and inspiration. Here's one. 
in the, the plenary of negotiations uh, on a platform, a state start, assurance from many peoples that the platform uh, and its work plan won't allow one particular Indian peoples to seek independence from that state. And the question was, it was funny, the question was formulated in such a way that if I, as representative of Indian peoples in that negotiation session, if I answered the question directly, doesn't matter how I would articulate it, uh, we would lose. Either in the short term, short term or in the long term. So the question was phrased in such a way that it made me pick whether I was more comfortable screwing the process and save the aspirations of a certain Indian peoples that were in the room, of course, or would I rather denounce their their aspirations, aspirations, and save the product and save the process? And those were odds that I did not like. Um, obviously, I'm not going to explain an analysis, but what's more important here than what I'm trying to explain is is the lesson. As a lesson learned, is the thought process that I deployed. Um, I remember there was no time to consult with consult with the other needs representatives in the room. Um, I also remember my phone blowing up as I was part of a Facebook messenger group of all Indian peoples present. And um, there were a variety of responses on a, on a messenger group like W2F or um, questions like how should we answer Um, I remember I turned over my phone as the responses would only clutter my train of thought and while I did that I looked to my left and Esteban show Esteban show Castro Diaz was sitting right next to me and he nodded and I, I interpreted that as an affirmation that I was I should just rock and roll take the floor and just do what I do best or no not, not do what I do best but just do what I wanted to do funny thing is a few days after the meeting I asked him what he meant and he told me that I knew what to say um, oh yeah quick sidestep I always asked Esteban Cho to sit right next to me in negotiations. Um, we both have experiences in negotiations at the UN and have both pivoted from human rights to climate change, um, bringing that Indian rights knowledge to the climate change arena. Um, Esteban Cho, I trust him with my life and he's an amazing friend. Um, sorry, if you're listening to this, um, Find Esteban show, buy him a beer, talk to him about the All Blacks, Pittsburgh Steelers, and you have a friend for life, 100%. Um, oh yeah, here are also two essentials I'd like to share, of course. Um, 
when you go into those meetings. Um, of course, you need your marching orders um, from the caucus or from the people you rep represent. Um, but in terms of sources that you want to have at your fingertips at the negotiation table, um, I always bring my notebook, a pen, a copy of the UN Declaration of Rights and Peoples, a copy of the negotiation text, of course, and the Alta Outcome documents. And 9 out of 10 times you have a position paper, so you want to have a copy of that, of that as well. Um, that's the bur I think that's all you need. Everything else is extra and doesn't have to be at your fingertips. And the other essential thing that I think you should have, that's why I also like um, brought in Esteban show, is you need to create your own ecosystem. Um, if you're at the table, at the negotiations table, be at the table. Um, surround yourself with people you trust and can be comfortable with. That can be both be your be both your wide angle lens as well as um, yeah, people that you can check your thoughts with. Um, I was very fortunate to have a lot of wisdom around me, so the only question was who was available actually and did I feel most comfortable with. So at that session, Espancha was sitting on my left side for direct conversations. Um, there was always yeah, there was also always someone on my other side in close contact with the unique representatives in the room. Um, and most of the times it was um, my dear friend Yanni Stefansson. Um, so I could use all my senses to read the people around the negotiation table. So, of course, I also asked Yanni to multiple times for, for her own opinion. Um, she was also strong as a wide-angle lens, in my view. As, but she was better at being in tune, in tune with the rest of the group. Um, so I could from time to time check in with her what everyone thought and she could alert me if there's something everyone thought I missed or I could ask her questions without having to take the time to look at my phone or have the time to take to uh, punch in the letters um, I think in this example though where the state asked me that question for some reason Yanni wasn't sitting right next to me but was standing on the other side of the room. All right, let's let, let's 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 go back to that example. Um, so if your why is strong enough, and you're, you're religious in how to arrive at your why, your thought process uh, no longer sees the boundaries. Um, in my case, I only saw the opportunities. And I attempt to filter everything that I do through four principles and use those four principles to arrive at my why. Um, I'd like to see the entire board 
So, which means to put yourself in a position that you become or have a wide-angle lens. Um, I like to look for ingenious solutions, which means, in other words, uh, keep pushing the boundaries. Of course, I like to do the work um, because um, accents speak louder than words. And this is the most important one, especially when it comes to against people's rights advocacy. Um, focus on the marathon, not the sprint. Uh, I always aim for the vision and the long term. Okay. <laughs> back to the actual example uh, so I had two options right uh, door number one was screw the process to save the aspirations of a certain these peoples that weren't in the room and door number two was denounce their aspirations and save the process boom I have my why boom 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 I went through my filter so I created in my mind door number three which was to push the boundaries. So I spin the question. I asked for the floor. I used the question as the basis to circle back to what the objective was of the negotiations, of the platform, the objective of these peoples, to explain um, the merits of respecting these people's rights to self-determination and the merits of maintaining the, the integrity of the UN Declaration. So for the duration of that particular meeting, um, that representative asked me two additional questions. And others could have seen it. I think they did see it as some sort of a provocation. But I chose to see them as these questions as an attempt to understand where we, where we as these peoples came from. Because, like I said, if you're at the table, we at the table. I was paying attention to his body language. Not only when the representative was talking and asking questions, not only when I was talking and asking questions, but when others were talking too. So, brings me to a pro tip. Um, one counterintuitive thing that I find helpful is that I'd like you to try and observe as well is to read the room when someone is talking. Pay attention to the conversation that you have with at least two other persons. Your reflex is to pay attention to the person talking, right? Um, but it's much more interesting to see the body language of, language of others and see how others respond. Again, it's very important when you're in that, the right to advocacy, when you're at the table, be at the table and read the room. Now, if you're smart, you'll check your thoughts with the right people before you pull up a chair. Um, that's what I did. The thoughts of others that have been in the same role or situation can significantly, significantly improve your understanding of your role or situation, but also give depth in your thoughts. And in my case, the way I articulated my thoughts. And you know what's so funny? The significance of this plot process 
is sometimes neglected. Well, it was neglected actually when the end result is there. I've seen it before, and the same thing happened with the platform. Because after the adoption in December 2018, the UN, journals, newspapers, everybody were celebrating, were celebrating the accomplishment. But I think if you pay close attention to the process that led to the adoption, you would be inspired. Definitely, because between establishment in 2015 and adoption, conversation conversation of the international community took place with the Indian peoples, the way it was meant to happen. And I'm hungry for that, and I like to be part of that process that makes these types of conversations permanent. Because I. I imagine these people's nations on an equal level with an e- on an equal level with an equal status with states. And I can I can already hear people thinking like, "Hey, Ghazali, you're crazy. That's impossible." Well, to me, you're not saying it's impossible. Um, how should I explain this? What you're actually telling me is that you're trying to fit something that's not there yet within your current reality. Well, yeah, hope (laughs) hope that makes sense. You know, and if you try to fit something that's not there yet within the current reality or your reality, don't. No, you don't have to. You don't have to have it all figured out yet. Um, make your dream your north star. Make it your vision. Make it audacious, big, and bold. Make it so big that it's almost impossible to reach. And here's. Well, I'm getting excited about this because I like. I love to talk about vision and missions. Here's where it gets interesting. You only think it's impossible because your narrative is shaped by the current reality. So if you make your vision your North Star, you start to see the political reality as a very fluid concept and your narrative is fixed on the North Star instead of that current reality. So when I started to realize that, things became really fun. So when you do this, your filter will go from only seeing obstacles to only seeing opportunities. You'll see the UN as another tool in your toolbox, and you will become creative in achieving your vision. Um, What's my vision? My vision is for Moluku to emerge as an independent indigenous nation built on the Alifuru heritage with a governance structure made of traditional elders and leaders with services and utilities like education, healthcare, etc., etc., that embrace the Alifuru way of life. And here's where I become real passionate. 
I don't believe I'm the right person to do all this. I do get excited though about providing the platform and frameworks for our traditional leaders and elders to do so. You know, ideally, yeah, ideally I would be a traditional elder or leader with decades of experiences uh, accumulated both on the islands as well as on the international stage. I think that would be the future leader, but I am not that person. So I'm more than, yeah, I'm more than comfortable staying in my lane. So, uh, Well, maybe things will change in the future. I don't know. Um, but I'm not a fortune teller, and no one can tell me where I'll be in 10 or 20 years, so I'll just do what I can right now. Um, if you pay close attention to what I'm saying and what I do, You'll see that my passion is actually to be of service to many people, um, to provide value, to share. If you're like me, you'll go through a time where you won't be funded for what you do. And by time, I mean a month, a year, <laughs> or it can even be 10 years, 10 years or more. And that's why I need to become passionate about something. Because if you don't have it and don't like what you're doing, you're likely to throw in a towel when things get rough. And believe me, in the indigenous rights advocacy world, things will get tough. Um, just to give an example, most of my travels, still, even this one, I pay out of my own pocket. I don't take many vacations. I actually only been on four vacations in my lifetime. And when I'm traveling, when I'm working, I try to spend time with my family. Now, I'm not stupid. Um, Give If the stewardess came up to me and right now with a big bag of money and told me that everything that I would want or everything that I want to do is funded from now on, I would take it. No questions. But what I'm trying to say is I'm grateful for the process. I'm grateful for the process that I've been through. Um, so I think when I would in the hypothetical case that I would um, been offered that money, I would know the value of it. And in this process, um, you get to know yourself when things don't go your way. Um, you will also know yourself when things go your way but 
you'll learn much faster when things go bad. Now I know that I'm not a good writer yet. Oh yeah, here, here comes another story. I think from 2010 to 2014, I truly believed I was an amazing speechwriter. Um, in retrospect, I romanticized it. Um, probably because I religiously followed all of Aaron Sorkin's work, which included uh, binge-watching The West Wing. Um, Oh my god, we're about to land. So, um, here I am. Thinking that I could write. Amazing, um, Ivan Green speech. Like Martin Luther King. Yet, I think of, out of all the speeches that I wrote in my lifetime. And that could be a hundred or so. Two of them I can actually say I'm proud of. The one I read on the 10th anniversary of the UN Decoration and uh, COP23 speech my brother, my Natalia from Tuvalu read. So from 2003 to 2019, only two into 17, 17 speeches that I'm proud of. That's not a good average. Now I'm no longer breastfed myself and develop my own step-by-step plan to write effective speeches because I needed a step-by-step plan. Here comes the story. The last time I overrested my speech writing skills was in 2014. Not only did I overestimate it, I was cocky. In 2014, I claimed to have written the speech of the President of the Sun from the Norway that she delivered at the opening session of the World Conference by posting about it on Facebook. Um, some context. I thought I could be a good speechwriter, so I thought the World Conference would be a great opportunity to show people that I am the new yeah, that I, I could, that I could speech write and offer the Sami representatives to provide a draft. I think this was a month before the meeting. Um, bits and pieces were used, but I was beating my chest like a gorilla by claiming to have written the entire speech on Facebook. Immediately, I received backlash from people that knew otherwise. You know, and then that was like a, a boom. Reality check. So I deleted the post, embarrassed of course, and apologized to the president shortly after her speech. And I don't even, I don't, I think she didn't even know what was going on at that point. 
to this day, I regret. I regret what I did. I know I have disappointed some people by doing that, and to this day, some people don't even talk to me anymore because of it. But to this day, also, I try to avoid it from happening ever again. So was it a failure? Nah. I think it was a mistake. I think the fail- failure came afterwards. Um, the the fear of failure and fear of failure can have a paralyzing effect. Its effect on me was. You will feel judgment breathing down your neck before having done anything. Um, fear about what other people might think about you or what you're doing. You're, you fear other people's judgment, so you you play it safe. And in my case, playing safe was to not do anything. So after the World Conference in 2015, I was scared to do anything. I went, but didn't want to go to UN meetings. I feared to say anything or engage in any process, and that fear made me feel feel very unhappy because all I wanted. To go continue the that road that I've embarked on and continue the implementation process of the World Conference. You know what happened was once I thought about doing something or even send an email asking to be included or updated, there was always this. Can we go take your seats? There was also the always the chip on my shoulder, saying that these people that don't like you will probably persuade others to ignore you. There, oh man, there was a truth in my head that I created for myself, and I, I repeated it to myself so many times that it paralyzed me. And I know there are people out there that do or did the same. And the only thing I can say is that we'll have to find a way to get over that, over that fear of failure. Sorry, man, but you have to do it in your own way. I don't have a mold, or I don't have a secret recipe or a silver bullet for that. For me, I did two things. First, I started putting things in perspective. If I kept my mouth shut, that would mean I clip my own wings and not be able to do anything for Muluku. So that at least got me back up on my feet. And second, I put my head down and just did the work and let the merit of my work speak. And that's a lot easier said than done. You know. 
I've come across a lot of people over the years who, when you look at their Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube accounts, seem to be doing a lot at the international level. They they established a good online presence, uploaded a four-minute video of their statement, speaking through to power, updated the Facebook saying that the United Nations interrupted their speech because they were too negative about a particular state and complained that the UN doesn't do anything for their cases and it needs people at large. You know, that's what you see on the surface. I don't want to rain on their parade or like, I don't want to judge them, but when you look closer you'd see that those are incidents and the other 8 hours and 55 minutes because the UN meeting usually takes 9 hours they are sightseeing in or outside the UN having a 2 hour lunch or backbenching the entire day now don't get me wrong and just let me be perfectly clear walking inside or outside the UN is fine if you have continuous meetings, two-hour lunches are great if you're having a work lunch with someone or a group and taking a back bench is okay, I think. If you, if you just walked in after a meeting and are waiting for someone or you want to know where, where the discussion is, Oh man, the pilot is really slamming on the brakes now. Oof. Oh, um, where was I? Yeah, but if you see, this is what I'm trying to say. Um, if I see you updating your social media accounts on what's happening every five minutes. Now, your community or followers might find it pleasing. And you can do that if you have a delegation of four and you've divided the responsibilities. But if you have no one but yourself, I'd rather want you to stop doing that and make better use of your time. Oh, please don't make having found a seat with a microphone as close as possible to the podium and have it retained having retained it after lunch after the side events your only win of the day when I when I train or mentor participants for unit meetings I always tell them to do as much as humanly possible in the time available if you're sitting in a chair for three hours each session you're not doing it right Granted, if you're on the list to speak, you need to be prepared to take the floor. So don't move, right? Oh yeah. Um, on that note, when you have the chance, ask Anne Orgum of the Sami for her story. Yeah, for her story at the adoption of the UN Declaration. You will, you will definitely see my point. Um, for me, 
my mom put me at my place while, I were, while we were on our way to my very first meeting at DU1 as a representative. I, and I told her I was envisioned, I envisioned being a diplomat at the age of 15. And in a split second, she corrected me. You're not a diplomat. For the first 30 years, you're a freedom fighter, an activist. Yeah. Which I did. Okay, where was I? Um, oh yeah, my mom. I think what I'm trying to say is that it takes a lot of stamina and patience to get into the rights movement the right way um, it's easier but not yeah it's easier but not better to fly to New, to New York for the print forum once a year and call it a win um, for me like I have a part time job as a chef in the casino and I'm grateful that my colleagues know what I do and that the head chef managers and human resources allow me to have a very flexible schedule around the UN meetings because on average I think I travel like 13 times a year to international meetings but that's on the surface um, if you pay close attention you'll see I spend an insane amount of hours offline preparing for these meetings, um, I usually work night shifts. So usually from 11 a.m. to 11 a.m. to 6 p.m., I'm reading, writing, um, learning, skyping, messaging, and a lot of other things. Now this works for me. Um, that it works for me doesn't mean it will work for you, of course, and. I'm not, I'm not trying to present a mold that you should or can fit into um, because it works for, because it works for me now um, and because it works for me now doesn't mean that it works for me later I think it's an ever-changing process um, you need to do it your way um, and don't look at me as a mold um, I like what I'm doing here so I'm, I just keep on doing this until I either I fall asleep or pass out alright I talked about vision and passion before And I think you'll have to love it. Uh, otherwise, you will give up soon. You have to love doing the work. If you love doing the work offline and at the UN, it will shift in becoming, quote-unquote, fun for you. And, uh, and you won't feel like you're losing 
losing leisure time. Um, oh, by the way, don't get me wrong. Like, I don't spend 100% of my time on this. The ad- I think the only additional time I try to make... The only additional thing is that I try to make time for as much as possible is... Um, and what you sh- no, not what you should, but at least what I do is for family and friends. Well, fam- family and loved ones. Uh, both in quality and quantity. Um, I try to be with them as often as possible. And when I'm with them, I try to work not to work at all, by the way. So I can really, really be there. And other than that, I, I do the work. Um, I think the moral of the story is I want you to do things when you're at the printing forum or any other meeting. Um, yeah. <laughs> please, please, please do things. I beg of you. Um, what? What can you do? You can create relationships. You can develop your knowledge of the movement. You can uh, schedule meetings before or during the session with people who can give you the knowledge. Um, you can give you the latest on cl- latest on climate change. You can give you the latest on biodiversity. Give you the latest insights on human rights. Um, you gotta you gotta look at your narrative, your truth as something flexible. Uh, it's, it's a very, at least the way I see it, my truth is a very, very fluid concept. Um, by doing the work, I offer to collaborate on projects that fit within my vision, uh, statements, um, side events. I try to talk to your own agencies, states, uh, experts, there's so much there's so much you can do um, just go into as much meetings as possible try to be effective learn weigh in um, but mostly listen I think that's also important very important lesson learn to listen um, I myself am forever training to listen with an open mind uh, what that means is trying to listen to understand and not to react. Because the way we listen nowadays is to respond. Um, yeah, here's how you can tell that you're listening to respond. Uh, watch what your mind does when you disagree with someone. Um, you'll probably stop listening and go into intervention mode and just wait for the right time, right moment, eager to say what's on your mind. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah, do the work. So I think whenever I go to a UN meeting, I have a schedule of at least 10 things to do a day. 
um, ranging from meetings, drafting sessions, discussions, the session itself. And when the chairperson gavels the session to a close at 6 p.m., my work usually continues. I usually have dinner with others, and we either continue or start discussions offline. Um, you should be, if you really want to do the work, you should be cramming. You should be cramming as much as as much work as humanly possible in a day. Every day when you're at the meeting. Um, about the offline work, I absolutely love informal fireside pub meetings. Um, and these get-togethers, you'll see like 80 to 20 an 80-20 ratio emerge or a rule. I don't know what it is, but like this 80% of your time usually will have a 20% effectiveness and then the 20% mostly outside of the actual meetings will have a 80% effectiveness hands of God that, usually, that is usually what happens so do not underestimate the offline the pub meetings the dinner meetings the, 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 the informal meetings do not under- underestimate them Oh, and don't underestimate, underestimate your sleep. Don't forget to sleep. Um, six hours is usually... Yeah, six hours is a maximum is what I usually aim for. Um, the only exception is at the COP24 negotiations. I spent... I think I spent four hours of sleep a night. As I was also co-chair of the Ninja People's Caucus. And... At the time, I wanted to be prepared for the next day, and maybe more importantly, prepare the caucus for the next day, as we had daily coordination meetings um, at 9 a.m., and I saw it as my, yeah, I saw it as my duty to, um, to update the caucus and to facilitate the work as best as possible. And you know the 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 four hours again like it it worked for me. Um, I have a <laughs> people say that I have a very relentless work ethic to the extent that a lot of um, a lot of my friends oh I have to check if I have at the right bag. Yep. To the extent that a lot of friends in the movement describe me as a machine. <laughs> and yeah, I know it sounds stupid, but if it's too much for you, that's okay. Um, I know I can do this. I can do the I can do all the work. I can I can live on four max four hours of sleep a night. And because I I think because I because I paid attention to myself and like I said before 
self-awareness is important. Not only for your for your mental state, but also your physical physical condition. Um, but by the way, I knew I could live with the four hours, and therefore always. Yeah, I think I, I could live with four hours of sleep, and therefore always told myself and others I could sleep after the adoption of the platform. Um, which I did in the two weeks after. I slept a lot in those two weeks after. I'm not kidding. Um, oh, here's a side thought. Rights advocacy is about leveling the, play, the playing field for Indian peoples around the world on their own terms. Um, but if you're in the business of achieving your mission at the expense of or over the backs of other Indian people's missions, um, you need to find a different line of work. Or at least um, stop listening to this podcast because I don't think this podcast will be for you. Um, I am a very ambitious person at least from my perspective to the extent that I want to change the system. So I might see your goals as uh, modest goals while you see your goals as ambitious. Um, Again, I won't judge, but I think what I'm trying to say is if you should if you're not willing to work hard for it, you shouldn't complain when things don't go your way. Um, if the chairperson gavels you for being off topic or going overtime, work extra hard to nail it in your next speech. Um, Does the MRIP not include your recommendation into the final report? Reflect and work extra hard to nail it the next session. Like, do the work. Put in the energy to move the gears and do it well enough that no energy goes to waste. Holy shit, I came. Um, oh, yeah. I think here's the newsflash for you all. Um, decisions that are made that affect these peoples are mostly made when the MRIP and permit form are not in session. And I said it before, maintain that holistic view and keep that wide-angle lens. Um, now I'm trying to find my train. Um, where's now I lost my train. I'm a train of thought. Great. Oh yeah. I think what I was what I was trying to say is that. 
um, try to figure out in which processes are they talking um, about traditional knowledge now. And where can you move human rights or a rights-based approach into the decision-making process? Um, you have to pay attention to everything. And as a movement, we have to put all gears in motion. And knowing where it needs people's rights and interests might emerge. Um, and knowing all this, it's, it's a skill. And luckily, I have people in my network that have the skills so I can fine tune mine. Like currently the currently the print forum has the biggest participation of any people's in numbers. Yet people underestimate the Emirp, underappreciate the Human Rights Council. Um, or are unfamiliar with the treaty bodies. I'm not naive. I know money is an important factor and you can't attend all meetings, which gives you all the more reason to look at the UN landscape and see which UN session you can go to where you can make the most impact according to your own position, vision, um, your, your people's um, aspirations. I think what I'm trying to say is that don't be too comfortable on just going to one particular meeting once a year that you don't take time to familiarize yourself with other processes and develop skills to participate in them. Um, also, be very critical. Don't cling on a meeting just because it's happening in New York, in Geneva, Vienna, Bonn, or where else, Nairobi. No, in general, all, in, I think, and this is just a one, one man's opinion, my point of view, my take, my intuition, um, that all meetings are ineffective until you roll up your sleeves and put some spit in your, into your hands and do the work. So what I would like you to do, do the work and keep that wide angle lens. Um, for example, the Prune Forum. I started using the forum for networking. And I can best describe, describe it as Yeah, I used the print forum for diplomatic speed dating. Um, so I started to see my time at meetings as an investment. And the only return on investment you'll get is the work you put into. So I set up as much, much meetings as possible with people that I know, that I don't know, that I can... Um, further my cause, um, deepen my knowledge, etc., etc. 
And well, does it mean that I'm not preparing for any speeches? Um, no, that's not the. I think that's not the metrics that I'm using. I help draft statements. I help people. I train people um, how to make effective use of the UN system. Um, I weigh in on parallel meetings. I do my spiel at side events. Um, I try to brainstorm with others on recommendations. Meet, like I said, meet with states and these peoples. So, all in all, speeches are like maybe at most 5% of what I do when I'm in at the print forum. And even though I say print forum, you can easily interchange print forum with any other meeting that I attend. So, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is like wherever I go, I try to to either to build or maintain or deepen relationships. Um, oh, speaking of relationships, I have three stories that about that. Um, the first one is it's actually one of my favorite stories from the platform negotiations at COP23 when I took the floor on behalf of the Pacific and Latin American regions coming out in support of Ecuador even though a number of states were against their position and the Indigenous Caucus agreed to not intervene as a caucus. So we were basically at that meeting supposed, supposedly to only listen. Um, don't get me wrong, listening, listening is very important. And I like to listen at least twice as much as as much more than I speak, but they were hammering Ecuador. Um, was it smart? I think from a collective Indigenous Caucus standpoint, definitely not. But both our regions have valued Ecuador keeping their back straight in support of of the Indigenous priorities that um, that they were supporting, though they were getting pushed around by a number of states. And I think that what, what they were hoping for was that the caucus would step up, um, but they didn't, they didn't know that the collective agreed not to say anything in that particular session. And I remember I checked with Esteban Show, and we both agreed that at least our regions need to step up and support Ecuador even though the caucus remained silent. So I, I, chose to I chose to believe that we also wanted to show to the caucus how we should be approaching our relations with states that are willing to support our priorities. So I decided to ask for the floor and I came out in support of Ecuador. So immediately afterwards, we got some backlash from our indigenous relatives. But we gained a lot, though. The Ecuador, the I think, the, yeah, the Ecuador delegation thanked us, and the relationship between them and the caucus grew and became one of the strongest and the personal. And and I think the personal relationships are still strong beyond the adoption of the platform. Um. Now I can already hear you thinking, like, wouldn't it have happened anyway? 
Um, I don't know. At least not at that time. Um, regardless of what Ecuador would have done afterwards, we felt compelled to do what's right and support those that came out in support of us. Um, so that's, you know, about building and maintaining a relationship. How do you build a relationship? You know, I'm just a poor guy. Um, I can move people over to my side of the argument with fancy dinners. Um, the only thing that I like to do, and in the end set you up for a better relationship anyway, is to provide value. And what I like to do is to provide value up front. Um, yeah, the other story is actually an untold story. Um, one of the final rounds at the platform negotiations, Indigenous peoples need, needed support from states. And because of the final round, there were final round there was a sudden interest from states that didn't participate at first. So there were a number of additional states uh, representatives in the room that I've worked with in the past, actually. So for 10 years, I have provided them with um, feedback, information, um, thoughts, and made connections with themes and people that, for them that they were unaware of. And I think in those 10 years, not once did I expect them to do something for me in return, or did I say, um, if you do this, I did this for you, um, now you have to do this for me. The funny thing is when we stepped into that meeting, into that, into that room, they came up to me for the latest, for the latest updates. And I remember I updated them from our perspective and asked whether they were interested in my thoughts um, per paragraph. And they were so eager to help out. Um, one asked for my WhatsApp number. Two asked me to send texts over Facebook Messenger. And when the, and when the negotiations started, I just let them do the thing. And only on the most contentious parts, I sent them a text. So here's how my mind works. Um, I observe the I observe the discussion. I look at the room. I observe the dynamics. And out of the three states that I've been in contact with, I ask myself which one is the best to raise the issue. I want to raise, take into account their background and history, because um, I wanted to make it come natural and authentic. So, I've worked with these people before. I know these persons, so I know their words of choice. Um, so what I did was prepare a text that was comfortable to them. And a text was, that was so comfortable that they could pretty much read it verbatim. And I think what I did was, oh yeah, so I sent one text to one state, 
and send text to the other states to support the remarks made by, by that state. Again, like it's about providing value upfront, um, not asking for anything in return. Um, and which, oh yeah, the, the third third story. Um, you might think advocating for the rights of many peoples is to what, like walk up to a state and list your demands and base it on your declaration and and expect them to do the right thing. And if you, and if they don't listen, you use more clear-cut wording. And of course, there's a time and place for that. Don't get me wrong. Um, my style is a little bit different. Um, I go up to the representative, sit down with them, um, with him or her, and try to understand where they come from. I ask. I ask. Uh, I ask questions, and not once do I bring up my position, unless they ask for it. And by asking questions, um, yeah, by asking questions, you get you get to understand what they need. Um, the context of, the of their position. And once you understand the context, once you understand what they need, you're in the game. At least, I, I, again, like, everything that I'm saying is like one man's opinion, one man's perspective. Um, I'm just trying to share what I know. So, to understand a state's need, you... I think what, what you need to deploy is to, yeah, you need to deploy, first of all, patience and eliminate friction for them. So the previous one, the, the text uh, messaging example is an example of that. And face-to-face face-to-face conversations are good um, for that so try to have them as much as possible as long as they're effective um, but texting, texting is a very good tool and as well for mutual understanding and I think it all, it all caters to what I and it's just my thesis to all humans craving for connection. And I think texting is a very good low threshold way of communicating. Because um, the, the majority of people that own a phone and run this planet even prefer it over regular conversations. It's crazy, but... Well, I, I have the same feeling from time to time as well. Um, so I let um, texting serve conducts. So whenever you're trying to make your point or position come across, take advantage of that low threshold 
like texting to create a space for context. I, I cannot emphasize it enough. Context, context, context. Um, because I believe that you want as much as information on the table as possible. Um, the more information, the better, because it will help you. I'm, I'm definitely, I'm a true believer of that. Uh, with more information, you're better honed to, to your needs, your state's, uh, not your state, the state needs. Um, and do that with all, do all these, go into all these conversations with all the states at the table and you're able to make effective proposals. Like, you should see my WhatsApp conversations with state reps, NGOs, etc. Um, you'll see the question I ask most often is, how can I help? So, when you understand the context, you can start providing value. And you do that by explaining how your position relates to theirs. Um, and not their position, position, but like how it relates to their needs. Um, I think that's totally different. Um, let me explain. Um, a representative has instructions from capital or their lead negotiators. Um, so those are like positions but if you go into depth like you, you discover their needs and that's what you need to know and in terms of providing or eliminating friction I like to put value that usually starts with here's what you can say to your capital or here's what you can say to your lead negotiator you know what I mean so like give them value and give that in a way that eliminates friction. So to come back to the to the example that I'm trying to give is if you're in negotiations, analyze the text. Um, better. Here's what I did in the latest at the BBNJ negotiations. Um, I analyzed the text analyze their previous state of position. Um, I gave my gave our text proposals and gave the source and rationale and include and included all this into a spreadsheet. And you can also provide a cheat sheet if you want as well. Um, I hope you can see where I'm trying to go with this. Um, these are just a few ways of a hundred additional ways I have to engage in advocacy and negotiations. Um, but I think each of them, if you pay attention, each of them are built on relationships. Um, and for all those people out there reading this or listening to this or consuming this in it, 
um, and immediately think I'm a sellout, think about what, about what I'm after. Showcasing the international community that Indian peoples are more than able to play at their level. Um, I think these are my immediate thoughts on relationships and. Um, oh, and oh, and by the way, what I said just now, you can interchange states with Indigenous peoples as well. And before I forget, don't shoot from the hip when you go into those into advocacy or negotiations. So when you step into spaces where Indigenous peoples' rights are discussed or should be discussed, um, at least bring a copy of the UN Declaration with you. Um, a copy of the Alta Outcome document. Uh, I think those are very important um, documents to have with you. And it can hear you thinking. Um, this all sounds great. Except in the real world, we are losing our lands. Um, our defendants are being detained. My people are starving to death. And I can't cook the UN Declaration. I know. I understand, I get it, I'm not naive, and I think all I'm trying to say is we need to create that enabling environment and we need to get it right. Uh, and that's what I mean with the UN Declaration being the normative framework. It's another way of saying that the environment for indigenous peoples must be based on the UN Declaration and will make us feel safe and trust others enough to engage in partnerships. Um, oh, by the way, trust in the movement. I think that's... something that I also have some thoughts about. I think... Let me sit down for a second. Trust, partnership, movement. Um, all right. For the first nine or ten years, I truly believe that there was a lot of solidarity within the Indian rights movement. Uh, maybe I was young. Maybe I was naive, but boy, was I wrong. Um, once you're onto something or in a leadership role, I've learned that there are toxic people and haters out there that who like nothing more than seeing you be discredited, fall down, or like nothing more than to chop off the legs from under you. So sometimes... We are our own worst enemies. And you have to be brave to stay your course. Um, because these people um, will try to knock you down. Believe me, over the years I have been insulted a thousand times. I've taken a lot of, taken a lot of punches. Um, accused of being a CIA agent, an agent of genocide. Um, 
and people will do and say nasty things. And it's hard to stomach everything, especially when you're all by yourself, defending your role, position, or conviction. Um, and for me, like, what I've learned is like ne- negativity leads to judgment, or like goes hand in hand with judgment. Maluku is in Indonesia, that's what, they, what some people say. Uh, so Ghazali is from Asia, not the Pacific. Um, Ghazali is not from the Pacific. Man, uh, you know, people are so quick to judge others based on their own false narratives. That's why I always keep, why I always keep pushing for more context. Um, just, you don't know where I'm from. You don't know the context of Maluku. We were there before Indonesia. You don't know me. Do you think my grandparents chose to live in the Netherlands? People spend so much time on judging others based on their own truths. It's getting becoming a Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to say frustrating. It's 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 empathy. I think I'm getting out getting a lot of empathy for them so please like, pl- check your narrative before you judge others um, most of the times your narrative is, narrative is false when you start when you start to judge others and, and, and this is what I had to go through in the less than a decade you know, and I can't imagine what my mom had to go through in a lifetime and she's heard it all seen it all experience it all and maybe it's because I have her DNA that I chose not to crumble um, but you know now I feel I'm stronger than ever um, and I promise you if you have gone, been through the same or going through the same um, if I can come out stronger from judgment and negativity so can so can you and here's Here's something I wish I knew back then, because that would have made things so much easier. Um, but then again, if I hadn't have all these, didn't have a, have all these setbacks, all these frustrations in the first place, I wouldn't have gone through this process of self-awareness. So I should thank them for that, actually. Um, what, what I wish I knew back then was that toxicity, judgment, hate, and negativity, negativity, I see them now as signs of weakness. When people judge you or say negative things to you or about you, it's because you triggered something in them that made them feel weak and insecure, and, and people tend to project their own inability or insecurity, insecurity on you. Um, so I dealt it with deploying empathy for for them because I naturally um, have empathy for weak people so when I see or hear someone say something negative about me I deploy empathy in my mind and tell myself not to take it personal 
Now, if this sounds like the movement, the people in the movement are all negative and toxic, it's not. Like, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of good people in the movement that actually do the work. I don't know all of them, um, but the ones that I do know are not only my friends, but I definitely consider them as my extended family. As they're... Yeah. And I think... They became my friends because I worked with them. And, like, working with all these different ninja people's activists, representatives, and people that love to work with these people around the world, it, allow, it allows me to pick their brains and learn, allows me to learn new things from them. And it doesn't matter whether they're 9, 19, or 99. I've, I've always believed that the Indian People's Rights Movement is a buffet of knowledge that I, that I could tap into. Um, when I was a little kid, I followed my mom around. I loved, I loved how she... how she interacted with her friends and, and adversaries, how people asked her for advice and how she helped others, and mostly without expecting anything in return. And she never said anything she didn't believe in and was a pitbull for her convictions. And she opened up a world for me and I believe now I want to do the same for others. And I'm getting tired, so then I should go check in, sleep in, because I have a meeting tomorrow. But I think that's why I'm excited about starting a podcast um, recorded for anyone who is indigenous or wants to understand and help these people all over the world. Um, like the past years, I've seen the lack of exposure of what we're doing at the international level, and and, and I I wished, I wished people would share our views more and supported our work more. Um, so I think what I'm trying to do is to show people the journey of an ever-learning indigenous rights activist, attempting, to, <laughs> attempting to move closer each day to achieving my vision, while being the best person that I can be, uh, a good person, and, and show that you don't have to be a, a, a hard-ass politician or know the dark arts of appreciation, and that you can, I think that you can win with positivity, um, optimism, empathy, and that you can win without um, House of Cards-like tactics. Um, I'm not clear what the on what the podcast exactly is. It is I think it's both a continuation of an homage as a as, yeah. It's supposed to continuation of my mom's work or an homage to my mom's work. Um, I think as well as a as a big canvas to document my process, my work and talks with the news peoples about everything that's going on. All the topics that they want to talk about, um, their thoughts, their failures, the lessons they learned, uh, the hardships, their their aha moments, um, and the sacrifices they made to claim their rights, and and everything in between. Like, 
Like Indian people usually have only three minutes to to say what they can say. Um, I don't want to put a limit on on that. Like they can talk. I want to have. This, I want this podcast to be much more than that. Um, so, for example, um, I think the first episode of this podcast will probably be, be this love letter. Well, I shouldn't call it a love letter, actually. I'll call it the airplane project. I think I started an airplane, but I'm already back in Geneva now. Um, and... I think that yeah, I think that will be the first episode, and the other episodes I've already recorded. So one is with Tomohiro Harada, uh, uh, a friend. He's a Japanese researcher, and he, he quickly became a trusted companion of Indian peoples during the Bonn and Katowice climate change conferences. Um, you do have to know that I have already started recording conversations since last May, as I write this and or write. As I, I I record this in September, I I just wasn't able to upload this podcast as I expected, mostly because of work um, and other pressing issues around the world, and wanted to eliminate as much friction as possible. So as it's a one-man show so far, I'm going to trans- transcribe this project myself and post it on Medium, Medium and other places. Um, as you can hear, obviously, this is a, this is a podcast on training wheels, so um, I appreciate as much feedback, feedback as possible, and um, yeah, let me know what you, what you think um, through my social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I really enjoyed documenting the work. Um, So please subscribe to this podcast and share it. And if you want to continue the conversation, you can drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And let me know what you think. Have a great day.